Welcome to the Vivid Church Podcast. Wherever you're listening from today, it's our hope that this message would help you reflect the light of Jesus' life for all to see. What a fitting story when we get into talking about the church. Today, we're concluding our series on two truths and a lie. Have you been enjoying this series? We've been having a great time talking about some popular sayings, some things, some perceptions that we may have about life, about, um, about love and sex and about everything like that. And we're talking today about church, about the church, two truths and a lie about church. The church has been, um, uh, I mean, always on, on the cusp of change and new things. And as culture shifts and changes over the thousands of years that the church has been around, um, we see a lot of different opinions about the church and about what the relevancy is of the church and what the place of, our, of the church is. This is like church capital C, not this specific building. It's like the global church all around the world. So I want to talk a little bit today about two truths and a lie about church. And I'm going to tell you what they are right now. I'm going to be speaking on one of them, and then we'll pass it on to Pastor Dustin and then Pastor Kobe as well. So our two truths and a lie, our three statements are the church is beautiful, the church is flawed, and the church is optional. Beautiful, flawed, optional. Okay, you got them? I'm going to be speaking on the church is beautiful. The church is beautiful. And I'm going to tell you right now, uh, this is true. Okay, I just can't get away from it. I got to tell you, uh, I'm horrible at keeping secrets sometimes. So the the church is beautiful. This is true. When we talk about beauty, uh, there's a saying that comes to my mind, and it is, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Now, this saying has been, uh, different versions of this saying have gone on for really um, a couple of thousands of years. You can trace it back even to like early Greeks. They had their own version of do- talking about beauty and, uh, and trying to grasp what beauty is. Essentially, um, a poet named um, Margaret, I want to say her name is Margaret Wolf Hungerford. She coined this phrase in the 1800s, and the saying really means beauty is subjective. Okay? Beauty is subjective. It depends on who you are, on your preferences. We all have different preferences. Now, I would say, this, it, uh, guys, if your wife or your girlfriend says, um, how do I look today? This would not be the phrase to respond. Well, beauty is in the eyes of the beholder. Okay, so don't, don't lead with that, all right? I'm just going to say that right now. Um, I'm not speaking from experience, thankfully. But don't say that. But beauty is subjective, and in most things in life, this is true. We have preferences. Uh, I, I, love, I love looking at art. I'm kind of a creative kind of type, and I like to listen to music, and it, if time allows me, I love to sit and just focus and listen to all the sounds of uh, whether it's classical music or uh, it, like a good indie album that you're just sitting and listening to all the colors and textures. And what I consider beautiful in music may be very different from what you consider to be beautiful, right? Uh, You can look at a painting. Does anyone love going to like art museums? 
Anyone love a, a good art show? Uh, I, I kind of geek out on like abstract art sometimes. Some people just hate it. And I like to kind of go like fully go method on it. I just come in like, hmm, wow. I can see that there's a, that there's a, a turmoil going on. And, and uh, those strokes, they represent uh, the struggle. But this, this light comes out. And this could be, and I like to kind of goof around on that a bit, whether I'm right or wrong on it. But it's subjective, right? Someone, what one person thinks is beautiful, maybe very uh, unattractive or messy to somebody else. Now, I want to argue today that the church is not subjectively beautiful, but it is actually objectively beautiful. There is, there is a, uh, an intrinsic, you can't get away from it, beauty that comes in the church. Big C, capital C, church. And I, I want to just share a few reasons why uh, I've come to this conclusion in my study. Now, obviously, I, I've grown up in church, and I, I follow... Uh, my, man, I, my earliest memories are in the church, so it would be easy for me to say it subjectively. Yes, of course, you would think it's beautiful because you've been around it, but, but the church is objectively beautiful, and I uh, want to lead you to a few passages. Matthew 16, 18. If you have your Bibles, open that up right now. Matthew 16, verse 18. So Jesus is talking to the apostle Peter. And Peter has just said that he, uh, he recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. The Son of the living God. Are you there, Peter, uh, Matthew 16, verse 18? And Jesus says to him, he says, I tell you that you, Peter, uh, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. On you, Peter, I will build my church. The first reason why the church is objectively beautiful is because Jesus built it. Okay? Jesus built it. And I know that sounds like, well, that's so obvious, of course. But when we talk about uh, kind of philosophically speaking about ideas, we have to have some guiding principles. Okay? Guiding principles to agree on. And if we don't agree on the guiding principles, uh, we're just, we can't land on anything. So the guiding principle I want to invite you to agree with for the sake of this discussion is that, that Jesus built the church. Okay, so he is the master builder. He built the church. I'll guide you again to Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1.18. Colossians 1, verse 18. Peter, or Paul wrote a, le- a letter, and he said this to them. He says, and he, speaking about Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. Jesus is this master builder, this creative. He's the ultimate creative type, and he has designed. He was, at, he was there at the beginning of creation, right? John, uh, uh, in the book of John, it says, in the beginning was the Word, Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was there from the beginning of time, from creation. He designed the church. So this master builder, this beautiful creator, uh, also created the church, and he has a design specifically in mind. It's beautiful. Ephesians 5, 26 and 27. I'm giving you a whole bunch of scripture today. I hope that you're flipping through the Bible. It, when I was younger, we used to have these things called sword drills, because the, the Bible is like the sword of the Spirit, and we'd hold it up, you're like, swords up. Everyone lifts their Bible up, and you say, Ephesians 5, 26. 
go. Or if you're really like going for it, you'd say charge. <laughs> and you'd pull your Bible, flip to the page, and then the first one who's there has it. I'm not going to make you do that right now, but I hope you're following along. Ephesians 5, 26. This is beautiful. So it's just talking about husbands and wives, actually. And it says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. And the next section says, and gave himself up for her. And gave himself up for her. And if you keep reading, it says, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. So Jesus has this design. God has created the church. It's this beautiful design. And, and he is continuously purifying and forming and shaping, and it's, a, it's magnificent. We used to sing this old song, this old hymn from the 1800s, um, and it was, "'Tis a glorious church without spot or wrinkle, washed in the blood of the Lamb.'" And, and it would go on, and you'd be like, "'Tis a glorious church,' and you'd be stomping and clapping, you'd have a good hoedown. I always kind of thought of, like, ironing, because it's like, without spot or wrinkle. I'm imagining, like, as, like, an eight-year-old kid, like, ironing the church, how does that work? <laughs> without spot or wrinkle, but, but Jesus is presenting as, as, um, as a husband would be so proud to honor his bride, bringing, bringing her forward and showing his bride off, not because she's an object, but he's just so in, infatuated by her and loving her. That's the same. Jesus designed the church. It's his design. It's beautiful. It's a, his bride. And, and um, he talks later about he would lay down his life for his bride. Man, I would, I'm not a big guy, but I would, if someone gets in, in the way of my wife, I'm going to throw down. I'm going to dedicate my life. I'm going to lay down my life. Uh, Jesus is intrinsically involved with the church, and he is ferociously protective of the church. So if we can just, as a guiding principle, recognize that the Jesus designed the church, it's his bride, and he also is going to protect what he, what he loves. So we need to be careful that we don't stand in the way and tear down Jesus' bride. <laughs> That's really important. And, and lastly, I just want to leave you with this before Dustin comes up. The church is beautiful because people are the medium. The church is beautiful because people are the medium. If you are involved in art or painting, sometimes you can have a, a mixed medium where you have oil and you have acrylic and you have maybe, maybe ink and watercolor. We have some artists in the room. I know that you know what I'm talking about far more than I do. Um, but there's mixed medium. There's this blending together of different textures and functions and purposes. And it says right here in, in 2 Corinthians 3.18, I just want to leave you with this. It's, it's fantastic. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Are you there? Swords up? Just joking. And it says this. It says, he's talking about, uh, Paul's talking about how when Moses encountered the beauty of Jesus, that he shone, or the beauty of God, he, he shone so bright, he had to, he, the Israelites said, whoa, put a veil on your face, because we, we're, we're scared, because you're glowing. <laughs> and then uh, Paul's saying this, we, now that we've experienced this life, this transformation in our life, we shine, we glow, just kind of like Hattie's story, uh, as, as we go from darkness to light, that everything changes. And it says here, right here, and we all who with unveiled faces, we can take that veil off. We don't have to be ashamed. We don't have to hide. It says we contemplate the Lord's glory. We are being transformed in his image 
with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. There is a beauty and a rawness and a diversity that comes in the church, being this mixed medium of beauty, this painting, this master creation from Jesus, and you get to be a part of it. And I am so excited to see the way that the Lord and the Spirit wants to transform your life. Amazing. I like that, Joel. Schwing! <clears throat> if I learned one thing today, it's about a sword drill. All right, swords up. Schwing! No, I'm just kidding. Um, two truths and a lie. We're going to play this quickly with me. Um, here we go. I have eaten a fried tarantula in Cambodia. I have gotten dengue fever in Haiti, and I have visited the Rwandan Genocide Memorial Museum in Rwanda. Uh, If you think it is the first one as the lie, raise your hand. If you think the second one is the lie, raise your hand. If you think the third one's the lie, raise your hand. All right, we had about half participation, but the first one was the lie. I have never been to Cambodia. Eh. I have not eaten a fried tarantula, though a friend of mine did when he was in Cambodia. So it wasn't me. It was actually another person named Joel Reimer. Same name, but twice the, twice the Joel. Twice the Joel. Yeah. Um, Two truths and a lie. We've got the church is beautiful, and then the church is flawed. Who here has ever seen someone try to explain something with just the most rose-colored glasses? I don't know. I've seen that before where it's just like, oh, it is absolutely perfect. Like, okay, this this is a moment for all the parents in the room. Your baby. Not always cute. (laughs) To be completely honest, sometimes a little bit funny looking. We were blessed by a cute baby this morning, but the reality is a lot of times they've got that cone head and they look exactly like all of their grandparents combined. When my daughter was born for the first like two days, I was like, oh, you are your Nana and you're your great gramps and you're not even related by blood. Like... Your grandpa was adopted, but you look like his adopted parents. For some reason, I don't know. But sometimes we can paint things with rose-colored glasses because of our love for it. And that's not always a bad thing, but sometimes we do need to acknowledge fault, right? We do need to acknowledge things that aren't necessarily good. And I think uh, the church is the perfect place where we can acknowledge wrong, but also look to the redemptive nature of Jesus. Like, we can look at things, say, in our nation, like residential schools that have a, uh, a stamp on the church in Canada. Do we necessarily believe that everything that the church did at that time and everything that went on in those schools was 100% the church's fault? Well, I, I wouldn't believe that based on what I believe the church is, but the church as a whole had... Uh, is, is marred by that. 
So I think we have to look at what the church is. I think we have to look at the people in the church and then what God's doing in a place of redemption. So starting off, first, first place we want to look is where the church started. In John chapter, let me pull out my Bible, John chapter 21, uh, it's after uh, Jesus was crucified, it's after Jesus rose again, and he has a talk with, with Peter, and Peter had denied him three times when he had the opportunity to stand up for him. He had the opportunity to defend him, but he denied him three times and then went back to the old, his old life, the old thing he was doing, which was fishing. And Jesus asked him, he said, Peter, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he gave him the opportunity to be redeemed three times. And in that, he told him to go and feed his sheep. Go and serve the people. Go and, and build my church. So we know that the first person in the church was pretty flawed. He was pretty messed up. He was afraid. He denied Jesus. And then he went back to his old things. And I think we can have a tendency as members of that church to be flawed. We can have a tendency to go back to our old ways, to go back to the things that have held us back in the past or things that we've looked to in the past for uh, hope, for strength, for all of that kind of stuff. And we can get stuck there. But we need to look at Jesus is in the, in the business of redemption. So what's a good place to, to start is that he had to have a place of humility in order to do what Jesus asked of him. We need to have a place of humility in order to be the church that reflects Jesus as opposed to reflects our own values or our own um, sinful nature, the things that we like for ourselves and that ends up becoming a poor representation of the church. So I would argue to say that when it comes to things like residential schools and it comes to things of that the church has been marked by, I would believe that that's been a step back from relationship with Jesus, a step back from the grace of Jesus, a step back from the gospel itself. And now I, I think that, um, sorry, I got uh, distracted. Um, <clears throat> but when we step back and we, we don't have that relationship with Jesus, we get the, what can happen is so much different stuff can come in and it can just end up being pretty nasty pretty quick. So what do we do? Well, we want to remain in Christ because he is the vine and we're the branches. If we remain in him, he remains in us and we get to reflect him. Does that mean we're perfect? No, because in the same scripture, it talks about how the branches that produce good fruit also get pruned so that they'll produce more fruit. So we get to be those branches. We get to have a place of humility before Christ, ask him for help in areas of our life. When we recognize areas of sin, when we recognize areas of wrong, oh, we just get to humbly come before him, receive his grace, and grow. Receive his grace and reflect his church for the world to see. And um, in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 15... I'll get you to flip there. 
Thank you, Jack. I am a dad now, so I can make those jokes. So, it says, It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely supposing that they can stir up trouble for me when I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will continue to rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and God's provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. And I think that when it comes to uh, the church, well, we're the, we're the living stones. Joel touched on uh, uh, the church being stones. And uh, we're the living stones, and we have the potential to preach Christ out of selfish ambition, or we have the uh, potential to do it in hopes that people get to know him and people get to get set, get set free by him. And um, we get to be a part of that. And he is actually redemptive, even for the ones who aren't doing it out of the best place. In Revelation chapter 2, there's an address to a bunch of different churches. And he commends them for the good things that they're doing. And then he brings correction for the things that they're doing wrong. And then he, he offers them a chance to return to their first love. And when you can return to your first love, then the grace is, is, is re-given. And so that they get to receive the grace uh, even for the things that were off because God is in the business of redemption. I think of the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet and God asked him to marry a prostitute. And she was adulterous. She uh, wasn't faithful to, to their marriage. And... Um, she left them, went back to her, her life, and God told him to go back and to cover her again and to bring her back in and to forgive her and to, to be married again. And that's the picture of the church today, with Jesus being Hosea and us being his wife, Gomer, which is quite the name. Um, but he's called us to return to him and to be covered by him. That doesn't mean that we don't uh, ever say that we're perfect, but it, it means that we, we own where we're at and we get to receive his grace. So I'm going to finish with a quote from Charles Spurgeon as Kobe comes up, and it is this. It's this. The day we find the perfect church, it becomes imperfect the moment we join it. Because we're not perfect. (laughs) 
Dustin, you're the best. Hey, can we give it up for Joel and Dustin as they've been bringing the word today? Now, I want to finish with the last one, which um, you may have put together. We're uh, positioning as the lie today. The church is optional. But I'm going to leave that up to you to decide. Um, you know, as Matt and Vanessa were up here earlier, um, and I knew that you guys were going to do the dedication today, I was reflecting on all the weddings I've been able to officiate over the last little while here. It's crazy. Um, I've been a pastor for 15 years, and some of the kids I used to pastor uh, in my high school pastoring days, they're getting married, and I get to do a lot of weddings right now. I'm kind of in wedding season, and I kind of just say the same thing every time, and it kind of pertains to this thought today. Um, I always go back to the beginning, and so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis 2. Uh, Genesis 2, it's, it's the first marriage. And, and I'm always going to bring this up. Uh, if I ever do your wedding, okay, we're, we're going to go to Genesis 2. So I'm giving you a sneak peek. We go Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, and, and this is where you need to highlight in your Bible. This is my whole point today. This is what the God said. Actually, a couple weeks ago, I preached on truth, and there's this hermeneutic called the principle of first mention, and the first time something's mentioned in the Bible, it carries more theological weight. This is the first time God says something is not good, and it carries more theological weight. God creates, and he goes, good, 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 and then he sees something in the garden. He says, ah, oh, this is not good. I have to fix this. He says this, the Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. It's not good. And, and my joke at all the weddings, I'm like, hey, Matt, before you met Vanessa, it was not good. You know what I'm saying? It was not good. <laughs> you needed her, you know? Um, but the Bible says, so the Lord God, we're skipping ahead a few verses, caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with uh, flesh. And the thing you say at weddings is he didn't take a bone from his feet that the woman would be beneath him. And he didn't take a bone from his head that the woman would be above him. But he took a bone from his rib that the woman would be beside him. And all the girls go, ah. That's what happens. And then the Lord God made woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because I saw her and went, whoa, man, (laughs) for she was taken out of man. And that's why a man leaves his father and mother, and you see, united to the wife, and this is the most important thing, the two become one. And then the Bible says, God says, this is very good. You know, the first time God says, very good, is when man and woman come together. And then I always do this in weddings. I go to the scripture Joel shared in Ephesians 5, and the Bible says this in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And isn't this incredible? Watch this. We see that in Jesus, the plan that God had to solve the not good of loneliness was this covenant called marriage. And marriage was actually a picture of the church that God was going to create. See, see, the reason that marriages are so holy the reason that we honor them, the reason that we sit and there are witnesses and we sign and we stand together and we pray and we ask for God's blessing is because humanity recognizes that something holy is taking place. And why it's so holy, and we know this as Christians, is because the marriage we have is a picture of Jesus's marriage to the church. 
The church is this holy, beautiful, flawed bride that Jesus is perfecting. And husbands are called to lay down their life as Christ has laid down his life for the church. And so I ask you, after we've heard all these amazing messages today, this question, is the church God's beautiful bride, the thing that Jesus is building on planet earth, the the, the magnificent thing that will be united with him when Jesus returns, is is it wise to treat that bride as optional, as a Christian? Is the church optional if you love the Lord? I have three things that we wouldn't have without church. And each time I'm going to ask the question, is the church optional? These are three things that we only get here together when we're part of the bride of Christ. Watch, watch this. Uh, Three things we don't have without church. One, God's purpose. Guys, we don't have God's purpose if we don't have the church. I remember when I became a dad uh, 11 years ago. I've got an 11-year-old, guys, okay? You need to be praying for me. (laughs) He's a good boy. And I'll never forget, I was 24 years old. And then my voice did that all the time. I I weighed about, uh, I was like a buck 30, okay? (laughs) And and I remember we went to the ultrasound and and the doctor said, it's a boy. And I felt like I floated like out of the meeting like this. I I don't even remember what happened. I got in the car and Jenna just watched me bawl my eyes out and like yell with joy. She had never seen me do that before. She was like, I was just like, in my car. I was so excited. And I'll never forget when that little boy came out and I, and I held him for the first time. And, and in that moment, my identity changed. My purpose changed. I went from husband to dad. And, and, and people call, hey, dad. My name changed when my son was born. See, when the church was born, God changed somebody's name. You see, see, Joel talked about the scripture. Uh, Jesus is asking, uh, who do people say I am? And, and they go, the, the disciples are like, some people say you're prophets. Some people say that you're John the Baptist reincarnated. Some people are saying all kinds of crazy stuff. And then he looks at, at the, the apostles and says, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. And Jesus goes, blessed are you, Simon. And now you will be called Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. See, Peter had a revelation about Jesus, and Jesus says, on the revelation of Jesus, when anybody says who I am, when anybody believes that I'm Jesus, they will become part of the bride of Christ, and on this revelation, I will build my church. And Peter's name went from Simon, which means reed blown in the wind, to Peter, which means rock. Listen, when you met Jesus, God changed your purpose and identity. See, is church optional? When you become a Christian, you become the church. It's not a building that we go to. It's a people that we are a part of. Our purpose is transformed in the church. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 11, Christ gave himself the, uh, sorry, Christ himself gave. He gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, 
pastors, teachers, leaders to equip people for works of service so that the body of Christ might be built up. Listen, God has put giftedness in you and purpose in you that can only be unlocked when you're around the people of God. You are so gifted. God has put gifts in you that we need. We, it's not just, we need you. We need you because God has called you and he's changed your identity. And one reason that you shouldn't just watch church TV at home, as awesome as it is that we have it, and you need to be in the building, is because the person to your right and left need your giftedness. God's, oh yeah, you can clap at that. I'm kind of preaching right now. I'm ready. I'm ready. About to preach in God's house. <laughs> you have to do the, uh, at the end you sound real preacher. Um, but, 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 but you're so gifted, we need your purpose. And here's my question. Can you be a Christian without purpose? Point number two, God's power is in the church. God's power is here in the church. What were the last words of Jesus? Bible quiz, Bible quiz, sword trail. <laughs> what was God's last words? Most people think it's in Matthew chapter anyway. Go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's actually not the last words of Jesus. Last words of Jesus are in Acts chapter one and he's about to ascend to heaven. He doesn't say go and tell. He says, stay and wait. For the Holy Spirit. And the church, Jesus like goes back to heaven and they're like, what should we do? They said, I don't know. Why don't we just gather and pray? And as they gather and pray, the Bible says in the upper room, come on, if you're Pentecostal, you start to bounce a little bit when we talk about the upper room. The Bible says that there was a rushing wind as they would pray on the day of Pentecost and tongues of fire went over their heads and they began to praise God in all sorts of different languages and they poured out onto the streets and 5,000 people were saved that day because God's power came in the church. You might say, why do I need God's power? Here's what God's power does. It helps you make Jesus look awesome. Some people think it's like unlimited power. You know, like you got this crazy power from God. No, no, no. God's power is to help Jesus look awesome in your life. God's power is the ability to tell your coworkers, just like Hattie, wasn't that story amazing? And the guy in our church, his name's Victor, and he had the power of God, and as he shared Jesus with Hattie, something happened in his life, because he had the power of God, the ability to minister in a powerful way. God didn't just give the Holy Spirit, and he ascended to heaven, and then he, he gave it to a bunch of individuals. Why did they have to wait and pray? Because power requires the unity and accountability of the church. We don't just have power all by ourselves. We get power when we come in contact with the unity and accountability of the church. Friends, if you want to reach your family, friends, if you want to reach your workplace, you've got to get connected to the vine. Be part of the bride so God's power might flow through you to minister the gospel of Jesus. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul says this to Timothy, don't neglect the gift you have, which is given to you by the prophecy when the wise counsel of elders laid their hands on you. 
See, God's power is connected to God's purpose. And we start seeing the apostles praying for people. They're lifting hands on people. They're always praying with hands. Why does God translate through hands? Is it like unlimited power? And then you get a gift? No, 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 no. It's because we need community so that God's power can flow. We need the unity and accountability. And, And we don't get wise men of God laying their hands on us, praying for us when we're disconnected from the body. So the question is, can you be a Christian without God's power? I can get Jack to come up. I got one more thing to say, and we're going to close the service. Because the third thing we can't have if we don't have the church is God's presence. God's presence. You know, we had a crazy couple of years over COVID, and a lot of people in my world passed away. Friends, um, uh, acquaintances, parents, of friends, uh, I officiated, helped officiate a funeral of a 15-year-old boy in the summertime. It was awful. And I was telling Doug, you know, I, I, as I get older, I always find it funny saying that because I'm only 35. And all, all the older people in the room go, yeah, yeah, just wait, buddy, you know. But, uh, but as I get older, I'm contemplating my mortality a little bit more. We all got to face that thing called death one day. We've all got to be courageous enough to live for Jesus until that last breath. And I don't want to live with fear. I've got kids. We have our church. We need to live with courage. And how do you do that? And I've been craving God's presence. Because in the presence of God, when I see Jesus, no longer do I fear because My Savior is with me, and he will do whatever he needs to do to get me to where I need to go on that last day. And I'm craving his his power and his purpose, but but more than that, I just want him. I want to live a life connected to Jesus. How do you get God's presence? Do Do we get a guitar and sing worship songs in our room alone? Kumbaya, my Lord. And then we feel his presence. Do we read our Bible more? Maybe I'll just read it more, and if I just read it more, maybe if I just serve him in some other way, if I could just think more of Jesus and remember, and I'll pretend he's the passenger in my car while I'm driving, and hi, hi Lord, and presence him. How do we get more of God's presence? Friends, all those things are wonderful, and and I do think that God's presence is a mystical thing, and and, and he can meet you where you're at. But the Bible says this, And it says so many things, so I'm just going to bring up this one. It's so important. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. You know why our hearts should crave this gathering? Because there's a presence of the Lord here that we can get approximately zero other places on earth. It's in the presence of God's people. And as I'm craving God's presence through the week, I'm just thinking, I can't wait for Sunday where I get to worship with the people of God. Listen, we're the body of Christ. And when we're together, there his presence is. And we need it more than we've ever needed it. And you just can't get it by yourself watching church TV on a Sunday. And if your soul doesn't crave that, there might be something sick there that God wants to heal. And I want to challenge you, church, 
to crave his presence. You need his power to be a dad and a grandpa and a friend and a minister and to unlock your gifting. You need his purpose so you don't get nihilistic and you don't start doubting and you don't fall away from the Lord. We need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling so God can work in us to will and to do for his good pleasure. We need his church. Hey, is the church still beautiful to you? Or is like Netflix just more attractive, more beautiful? Is rest more attractive, more beautiful? Or are we willing to fight for what 2,000 years of church history has fought and died for? The presence of God here in the church. Hey, is the flaws of the church discouraging you? Hey, man, listen. Uh, It's flawed, just like Dustin said, because I'm here, okay? I'm sorry. It's flawed because I'm here. (laughs) But you know what I've I've noticed is the longer I'm married, and Jenna's noticing her flaws and saying, I should change this, or, like, it's actually her flaws what make her beautiful. It makes her beautiful to me. I'm crying. Why am I doing that? I love Jenna so much. Dang it. But, But there's flawed people sitting next to you. They need your gifting. You're flawed. You need my gifting. We're the church. Let me pray for you, Lord Jesus. God, let us never take your wonderful church for granted. Oh, God, we love you. God, we need your presence more than ever, more than ever as we grow old. We never want to be found outside of your house. We want to be found inside your house, loving you. God, bless this church. God, let us show the world. Reflect the light of Jesus' life for all to see. Give us your power to minister to the people in our world. God, when we invite people, give us the uh, special power so that they might say yes. God, give people new purpose in this house. Give people new fulfillment in this house, encouragement in this house. God, we trust you and love you, and we give our heart to you right now, God. We, we, We thank you for your church. And from the front to the back with our eyes still closed, there's someone here today, you know it and God knows it. Um, and you're far from God today. Every Sunday, we just give a moment to pray for people who know that they're far from God. And the Bible says in John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son and that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Listen, friend, on the cross, Jesus did all the work for your sins so you can simply say yes to him and come into relationship with him. And right now, if you're far from him in the house today with no eyes open today, every eye closed, um, I'm just going to get you to put your hand up on the count of three. And what you're doing is you're just helping me pray for you right where you sit so that you can have a right relationship with Jesus. And if that's you, throw your hand up and wave at me. Let's pray together. Let's get right with God. Let's say yes to Jesus. One, two, three. Is there anybody here today? Say, pastor, that's me. Could you pray for me? I see that hand, brother. I see that hand. I see that hand. Thank you. Thank you. I see that hand, bro. Thanks. Hey, let's put our hands down and let's just pray together. And if you, if you love Jesus in your heart, lift those up who raise their hands. And if you put your hand up today, pray this with me directly to Jesus. He hears the thoughts and intents of your heart. Say, Lord Jesus, I love you. Thank you for loving me. I commit my life to you, Lord Jesus. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. God, I pray that you would remind me that because I love you and have relationship with you, that heaven is my home and that I have a purpose here on planet earth. Help me to be connected to your church. I love you. In Jesus' mighty name we say, amen. We hope that you enjoyed this edition of the Vivid Church podcast. For more information about Vivid Church, check out our website at www.vivid.church. 
or look us up on Instagram at vivid.church. Have the best day.